This is an ABC podcast. Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. How good is Australia? We respect the independence of the fourth estate. Peter Dutton will know he's alive each and every day. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Frank Kelly from RN Breakfast. Welcome back to the party room. Patricia Carvellis here from RN Drive. Now, Fran, listeners may or may not know, but you've been broadcasting from Parliament House in Canberra this week. It's really at the centre of all of the action, given it's a parliamentary fortnight sitting period. Face-to-face time with the nation's leaders. What's the vibe like there? Oh, it's the throbbing heart of the nation, PK. Um, The vibe, actually, it's a bit different. PK, it feels like there's a new government in town, even actually it's the same old government, third-term government, if you like, with the same old very slim majority. But I have to say it feels very different and it doesn't feel like that. Um, One cabinet minister described it to me as surreal, and I can't really say on air what some Labor MPs might have been describing it as. Some of them are in a bit of a funk. And really, on both sides, still a bit of shock um, because, you know, with the exception of one or two people... The government didn't expect to be back, and in fact, I've been hearing all sorts of stories of what some MPs had planned for after the after the election. Great holidays they've had to put on hold because careful what you wish for. And the difference too that I think it's sinking into Labor PK is that still, even though the government has a slim majority, two seats. It's a whole different story this time because some of those seats, particularly in Queensland, they now have thumping big margins. So ultra-marginal seats before, you know, gave a real sense of vulnerability to the um, Turnbull-Morrison second term, but it's a different show now. feels very different now. It is different, and I think Scott Morrison is part of that third-term government, but equally with the new leader, and of course he was there before the election, but not for long. And not with this authority. I mean, there was all the sense during that time they weren't going to get back. So, Exactly. So he has the authority. He's had his own win and has delivered majority government. I mean, it might be slim, but a win's a win and a win is a win and he's got a win. So <laughs> did you like how I did that? There was a lot of winning yeah. there. Um, but that's what he did. He did a lot of winning. What he did this week, what the government did was there was all this kind of discussion that they didn't have much of an agenda And if you look over the three years, there are big questions about what they plan to do. But they have been busy in terms of legislation, bringing up things that were perhaps shelved in the past, but making them issues again. And essentially, by doing that, wedging Labor on a couple of issues. So they've bowled up legislation that Labor has critiqued, said it doesn't agree with, but then essentially waved through, right? So the first Mm. one, we began the week with a discussion about how Labor thought this drought funding package, this fund that the government was setting up, was flawed and problematic because it was taking from an infrastructure fund, essentially, to put it into this drought fund. Labor said a lot about it, but then waved it through. In fact, only one amendment went through. It's gone. It's passed. It's happened. And then national security as well has been the other area. Now, Parliament is expected to pass a controversial bill which gives the Home Affairs Minister the power to bar suspected foreign fighters from returning to Australia for for two years it is. And uh, Labor has been making again... Uh, a lot of noise about how they would like their amendments to go through, those amendments that were actually originally agreed to by the Joint Committee, Bipartisan Committee, including Liberals. But now, again, they're going to wave it through. So what's the strategy here, Fran? What are they trying to do? 
basically they lost the election and I think the figuring of the hard heads and many in the party room is they don't have much choice. They lost. If they now started sort of blocking everything the government's trying to do, then at least half the population will be thinking, well, hang on, we elected them. Who do you think you are? And in fact, the question this week from the government has not been, who do you think you are? It's been, whose side are you on? And that has absolutely enraged Anthony Albanese because Anthony Albanese thinks and says publicly that what the government's been doing this week is not bringing... on bringing forward priority important policy, it's been bringing on fights, basically, just any policy they can think of that is going to wedge Labor and make it difficult for the new Labor leader to, you know, ingratiate himself with his base again because he is Labor you know, speaking out on issues and and values and um, policy areas that their one progressive base has strong feelings out uh, about, but then basically allowing the government to have its way. And Anthony Albanese has copped a bit of flack from uh, plenty in the media and commentators and and Labor supporters. But in his own party room, I think mostly they are with him because are they in any position of authority to be blocking things like a future drought fund? Why would they be doing that to farmers? You know, on national security, generally, in fact, I don't think Labor has... There's been bipartisanship on national security matters for many, many years now, since the Iraq war, I think, basically. You know, Anthony Albanese is not going to start splitting that. These are important matters. But the optics of it have been difficult for Labor to manage, as it was around the tax legislation the first week back. All that means is Scott Morrison's had three, three significant wins... Anthony Albanese is accused of folding his hand, uh, you know, and and lacking authority and and being weak. Having said that, there are a couple of uh, bits of legislation coming up now. I'm thinking Medivac and the Ensuring Integrity Bill. That's the union-busting bill. bill. Yeah, Yeah, where Labor won't fold. So, you know, there will be some standing up from Labor going on, I think. Labor uh, fundamentally will not attack or or weaken the union movement, which essentially they think this bill does. So Mm. on that issue, they're going to to stand firm on Medivac. They're also standing firm and they were, of course, the ones with the crossbench that allowed that bill to go through when the government lost the numbers extraordinarily and it became law. Labor doesn't want to change on that either. So that's what they want to fight on and that's what they will stand firm on. On the other things, they think it's not worth having the fight. But because they do go out and do interviews as I, at the start of the week, Joel Fitzgibbon came on your show, Fran, and said how bad the drought fund was and then mm. ended up voting for it. I do think there are some issues around how that looks. You know, very angry about something and then, oh, yeah, it's going through. Uh, well, it's I, a bit confusing though, isn't it? Because it's difficult for an opposition. I guess we've got to, we are used to Labor for the last few years leading the policy debate really on a whole range of things. Now, uh, you know, their view very much is, well, we tried that. It's not our job. They're the government. If they want to bring in legislation, our job is to point out the flaws, but it's not to deny lower paid Australians a tax cut or it's not to deny farmers access to a drought resilience fund. It's for the government to bring in legislation and then cope with the flaws in that legislation. So that's their thinking. I really don't know what other choice they have. I mean, Labor couldn't have possibly opposed the bill on tax cuts and denied thousands of Australians a $1,000 tax check in the next few weeks. I mean, that would have been political suicide and unfair. So, you know, I think that's what a wedge is, PK. The government's wedged them and uh, all they can do is make the arguments, point out the flaws, and then I suppose philosophically think, well, the government's going to have to be the one that deals with it. That's right. And also it's a long time till the next election. So it's the a long idea time. that it really matters that much what happens now. I mean, of course, we do a weekly right. podcast, so we talk about the week's events. But 
zooming right out to what would happen in three years. Yes, impressions are formed, but we saw... I think at the last election, how quickly things can change where everyone thought we'd written off this government and yet they've returned with a slim majority. It just shows that really what's happening this week is probably uh, not not in, indicative of anything that's going to happen in three years. And I think that is also in the minds of Labor. Yep, just, just put this through. It doesn't actually really matter. Look, I just think it's worth mentioning before we bring in our guest one other thing, which is a very, very different approach to question time by Labor. Now, question time is obviously a lot about theatrics and uh, it's about, you know, getting your grabs on the television news and prosecuting points. Anthony Albanese has completely overhauled the way question time works for Labor. Instead of very long questions, those famous Bill Shorten zingers that were often in the question, embedded oh, in the question. Don't you miss the zinger? Sometimes I do, actually. But, <laughs> but you know, and also just making a political point. Some of those questions were, mm. you know, the big end of town, everything's so unfair, you're so terrible, now answer this question. I think what Anthony Albanese's done, so far it seems to be quite successful, I've got to say, as a strategy, has been almost a journalistic approach. It's a real, it's like, I feel like... Forensic. Yeah, like a a legal approach or a journalistic approach, just going straight in and trying to get questions and targeting. And in this week, the example is targeting Angus Taylor, the energy minister, with really question after question after question after question, and they're short. And I feel like it's got the government a bit off guard. Yeah, I think that's right. It's um, it, They're trying to wrong-foot the government. This is what you call mind games, I guess. Anthony Albanese is a different leader. He's a new leader, and he's trying to make them squirm a little on the other side. So that day when they targeted Angus Taylor, who, you know, what they say is, let's go for the weakest link. They've picked that out to be Angus Taylor on a range of issues. The PM didn't get one question, and he didn't like it. He felt you know, out of the limelight. And that's because, as you said, question time is generally a bit of a, you know, a parade time, isn't it? It's your chance to get a grab up on the evening news. And if Scott Morrison's not asked a question, then his head's not up on the nightly news. And Anthony Albanese, I think, playing a bit of a long game here, has decided, well, my focus is not going to be on getting the best grab up on the news at night, at least not for now, at least not this early in the term. There's time for that. But his message to the caucus this week was, let's be a bit unpredictable. Let's keep thinking about how to keep them on their toes. David Crow, Chief Political Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. A long title, but a treasured regular guest. Welcome to the party room. How's Canberra? Yeah. Oh, it's cold, but it's great to be back here. It's great to be back. I love that. That's what they're all saying, not. <laughs> it's great to be back. I was just saying earlier, David, that it's a very strange feeling in the building and that a couple of government MPs have mentioned that they actually had completely different plans for the few weeks after the election. They've had to put them on hold. There are a few, you mean a few overseas holidays few that might have been organised before the outcome of the election? Careful surprised what everybody. you wish for is the yeah. phrase that keeps coming up. Up. So yeah. it's a very strange feeling. And pretty strange too, a pattern that's emerging, David, very early on, which is that the PM has, you know, roused the troops, gets the joint party room meeting, gives them a bit of a talking to and reminder, you know, you've got to respect what we promised at the election. Don't go talking off beat. You know, I don't want you all talking about New Start and things like that. But they're ignoring him. Yeah. And look, he has authority from the election victory. No doubt. But you cannot contain a coalition party room full of people who are very opinionated. And we saw that with Indigenous recognition because the Liberal Party room especially is full of constitutional lawyers. They may never have practised in the High Court, but they're certainly constitutional lawyers and they've got strong opinions on that. And they 
they won't be told to be quiet. And on superannuation, that's a real area where there's a lot of economic drives, you might say, who have come out of that uh, Institute of Public Affairs world where they believe, uh, well, they don't basically believe in in some of the assumptions about uh, compulsory superannuation. They don't like the word compulsory. Yeah, so we've got, we saw this sort of string, if you like, of MPs, started about 10 days ago, mm. um, coming out saying, well, we shouldn't, you know, go with the next tranche of the superannuation guarantee from 9.5% to 12%. That's legislated, legislated by Labor. Tony Abbott put it back, I think, to 2024. And a string of MPs, Liberal MPs, coming out saying, no, no, we shouldn't do that. It's taking people's money, taking them out of their pocket, that sort of thing. Eventually, Matthias Cormann and then Josh Frydenberg have said, not only are there no plans to not proceed with that legislated increase, we intend to proceed with that legislated increase. But having said that, there's a retirement view. But then in quite spectacular fashion, we got the maiden speech of New South Wales Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg, who maybe he wasn't in that joint party room meeting or maybe just hasn't got the hang of things yet. But he came out and not just said no to an increase in the super guarantee. He said we should only have voluntary superannuation ultimately for everybody, but in the short term for people who earn under $50,000. That's quite a spectacular sort of raising of the stakes. Yeah, and his background is in superannuation. He worked for many years for the Financial Services Council, which represents the retail super funds. So he know, And he was highly critical of the entire super industry, having come out of it in terms of the fees that it charges and questioning whether it's ultimately doing what it was set up for. His proposal was that those who earn less than $50,000 a year have the right to opt out of super. They can keep putting their compulsory super in or when they get their tax return, they could tick a box and have their compulsory superannuation contributions refunded. Now, he got some modelling done that suggests that if you take the money now rather than put it in your super fund, over a decade, that gives you X amount of dollars, which you could then use to buy a house. So it's it assumes a couple of things, you know, that you'll save that money and then put it into a home or, or some other useful thing now. At heart, there is some, there is a valid point that the intergenerational report has shown that even though we're amassing all this super, 80% of people still Mm. use the full pension when they retire. But they've still got the money. They've still got the money that they've saved. I mean, yes, there's fees. Um, I was talking to Jim Chalmers about this. Um, You know, the big question, I think that's a big question. Would we save our money if it wasn't taken for us compulsorily? And for me personally, the answer would be no. And also B, (laughs) if you're on on 50,000 or less, are you necessarily really going to be able to afford to buy a house? It's going to be a challenge anyway, mm. even once you get that deposit, isn't it? So these these are big ifs still, I think. The other big if is if it doesn't go from 95 to 12%, every analysis of that from those who don't want the increase to happen basically comes down to you would get higher wages now instead of the super guarantee levy uh, increasing. Now, that's a big assumption. Employers will give you a wage increase because they don't have to give you mm. compulsory superannuation. Well, would they? I mean, that's that, that's the core assumption. That would be hugely contested. And, of course, it's very easy to have a debate with a dozen, a dozen people within a coalition party room. The really hard point, which Matthias Cormann recognises, Josh Frydenberg recognises, is when you try to get to the parliament to repeal something that's there now that's legislated that puts that money, puts the increase underway over the next five years. And 
I just don't see how they could prevail in Parliament on that. No, and it's given Labor so much to work with, hasn't it, David Crow? The yeah. other thing that they've given Labor a lot to work with is New Start because quite a few people breaking ranks on that as well, back to the Prime Minister saying, hey, stop doing that because this increased pressure has been building on the government over New Start. Just this week alone, recording this Thursday morning, Liberal MPs Dean Smith and Russell Broadbent in an interview with me broke ranks on this, calling for a boost to the payment. And even the Labor caucus endorsed a new policy on Newstart, making it very clear that they believe in an increase, not just this review that they promised, which of course implied an increase, but it was all very opaque, I thought. Now, I know the government's been standing firm, even the Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, saying, just move to regional centres if you want a job. You know, there's all this kind of play and this idea that New Start is temporary, but is something shifting here now? There's a mood within part of the party room for an increase, that's for sure. And it's really interesting that my colleague Rob Harris revealed that there'd been this to and fro in that committee review where there seems to have been an instruction from the minister at the time, Paul Fletcher, look, can you take out this suggestion in your report that we increase new start? Yeah. So the sensitivity is is absolutely there. And the concern among some Liberals is also there. They can see the impact of this really low level of new start on community members. So I think the government is, A, not looking at an increase right now, but B, aware of some need to do something about new start, especially for those who are older recipients of new start who don't have the employment opportunities of some younger members of the community or and can't David, do some of the jobs. And, David, there's 173,000 of those, 173,000 Australians over the age of 55 yeah. stuck on Newstart yeah. till they get to the pension yeah. eligibility age, which is a long time. So I think the government's arguments are starting to ring a bit hollow, uh, you know, and that notion of, you know, well, go to rural Australia and get a job. They're crying out for workers. Can't well, yeah. Well, you know, it costs money to move, and that's what that inquiry found that some people are stuck, can't actually do what is necessary to be done to get a job because they have no money to even get a bus, let alone get a suit, let alone get on a bus to a regional country town where the work might be seasonal anyway and find yourself accommodation and all of that. So one message we heard was that the view in the Prime Minister's office is that if there was going to be anything done in the social services space, it might be a focus on pensioners not on the unemployed. Now, that means nothing on Newstart because they would look at the age pension. And I'm not sure that that's where some of those members of the party room are at. I think that there is a recognition of the problem about the older recipients of Newstart. I don't necessarily think that that will lead to an increase in Newstart but it could lead to some changes or maybe some allowances or mm. maybe some extra uh, Well, there's going to be this retirement income review. Maybe that gets taken up as part of that too. Christian Porter, when I asked him this about this issue at a doorstop uh, on Wednesday morning, made the point that there are rules that allow you to work while keeping full new start. Well, could they make those rules more flexible? I think that they do have some options. I don't think that there's any rapid decision on the way, but I do think that they'll they'll have to confront this because they've got the pressure in their own party room. The other issue that is next on the agenda, if you like, is the Ensuring Integrity Bill. Big priority for the government, um, obviously, and uh, it really 
works in very beautifully for them, politically I mean that, on the John Secker issue, the CFMEU and deregistration. But Labor's been countering that because they're very opposed to this with this wage theft argument after George Kalambaris, of course, was revealed to, well, you know, have underpaid his workers up to what, nearly $8 million, you know, just $8 million, yeah. just just nearly $8 million, you know, all the MasterChef uh, judges it's now gone. It's easy to get that award confused, PK. I know. It's so easy. I don't know. I've never, look, I've never run a business like that, so what would I know? Uh, although, you know, there is a law. David, I want your reflections. Let's just call it the big IR area. The government says it does want to move on wage theft, but it doesn't seem to be a huge priority. Labor wants to put pressure on this. Labor doesn't want to obviously vote for the other bill. Talk me through it. Okay, so Christian Porter's got that bill before Parliament now on ensuring integrity, and I think... Let's decode that for people. It's really union-busting bill. (laughs) Tougher rules on union officials where if they step out of line, they can then face sanctions. So that's definitely making progress in Parliament. It looks like it would go through because the government would get... One Nation behind it, Cory Bernardi behind it in the Senate, and it looks like getting Jackie Lambie because she's deeply unimpressed with John Setka and has made the point to the ACTU that she would support that bill because of Setka. Now, that's not the only bill in this space, though. Christian Porter is now talking about criminal sanctions for employers who don't who who engage in wage theft. It would have to be Well, I he think, was forced to talk about that. Yes, he's only doing that belatedly. And then we learnt, according to one of Scott Morrison's answers in Question Time, that that bill is currently being drafted. Now, that's happened, as you say, belatedly, and it's only happened in the last couple of days. First of all, Christian Porter saying that he wants to act and make that criminal. Secondly, suddenly we hear that it's actually being drafted as a bill. Now, it's not before Parliament, and maybe that's just talk. Maybe we won't see it for months, but they are now acknowledging the problem of wage theft, which they didn't do. And I think that is once a really interesting point about the Columbaris case and this MasterChef blow-up. It's actually highlighted the scale of the problem and now the government can't deny any action on that front. And and so it allows Labor and the unions, I suppose, because it's it's difficult to argue when you've got John Setka and others there that everything is fine and dandy in the union industry and there might be some community support for the notion of cleaning it up. But at the same time, there's a big argument now for the union movement saying, why would you be winding back us and our representation and our access to support our workforce when here's the proof that they're having their wages stolen and they need unions and representatives representation to defend them and stand up for them. Yes, and the government's chosen to, in in order to back its push against the unions, it's really got to do this criminal sanction as well. It's also got a third bill, which is the one about the transfer of money and the build-up of money in in union funds, which might be built up for paying for redundancies and so forth. And the government's throwing out a lot of accusations about how that money has moved between union accounts and putting more oversight on that. And then, of course, we've talked already about the fact that Labor's really, David, been, you know, raising issues with a number of pieces of legislation, drought, national security, and then waving it through. One where it doesn't appear to want to wave it through is this issue around Medivac, Home Affairs Minister... Peter Dutton raising this. It looks like it's all going to go down to Jackie Lambie and already we know that she's got this loose alliance with uh, Centre Alliance where they get together and make uh, some decisions together where they can with her a block. Do you think they'll get her over the line? Because they really need her, don't they? They absolutely need Jackie Lambie. They cannot repeal 
the Medivac bill without her support. If you look at the Senate, Centre Alliance are absolutely locked in behind the existing regime to get refugees transferred for medical reasons to Australia. With that position, the government could get One Nation, could get Cory Bernardi, or would get, absolutely needs Jackie Lambie. Her position is still considering. I've checked again this morning. She's not confirming where she stands on that, but it's true. She's talked a lot to Centre Alliance. Now, at the moment, it is interesting. Labor's Labor's not budging on this. They're coming under so much pressure on a range of fronts. And I think because there's still this grief over the election loss on the Labor side of politics, they do get blamed when they let something through and everybody wants to urge them to hold fast. And they are doing that on Medivac. And I think that will um, make it hard for the government to repeal it. Yeah, perhaps so, though. I think uh, Jackie Lambie, you know, her tendency on national security matters and things because of her army background, I think she's more inclined to go with government arguments. So I think there's a lot of work going on uh, from all sides at the moment around that. Just, Just finally, David, there's also these reports that Prime Minister Scott Morrison is looking a shake-up of the public sector. Now, we all remember when John Howard came in in 1996 and there was a night of the long knives, and I think it was six public service head secretaries who were sacked overnight, essentially. And then John Howard went on this process of absolutely stripping through the public service, getting all of what he might describe as the culture warriors out from the left and and replacing them one by one over those two years with, with people more of his viewpoint. Is Scott Morrison about to embark on a similar sort of exercise? Do you have any inkling? I don't have any um, inside word of of that happening, and I he da- is pretty. Doubt- he, he is pretty keen on the John Howard playbook generally, though, isn't he? I think there's a lot of lessons Scott Morrison's taken from John Howard. I think the differences here are he hasn't come in after a long period of Labor rule. The True. appointments there are appointments that the coalition itself has made yes, over that's right. five plus yeah, years. That's a big difference. And and also, I think it's really interesting that Martin Parkinson's departure is being portrayed as a completely amicable arrangement. Martin's decided that he won't be there for the full term and so therefore it's the right thing to do to leave now. You know, I spoke briefly with Martin in the G20 in Osaka and there was no sign of any unhappiness on his part about what he's doing next. So I think the message from Scott Morrison is about stability and continuity and therefore complete upheaval in the public service. I I would not expect it. David, as per usual, you're sharp as and always a delight to have on. Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Thank you both. Thanks, David. See ya. So we're foregoing question time this week in favour of something else. It was the first week back in Parliament this week and that meant maiden speeches. And I always love a maiden speech. It is the chance for an MP to really set out what they stand for. Often they go off to become, you know, well-known ministers and the maiden speech is quoted as as this moment of what they really originally stood for or what they raised. Sometimes they say very contentious things in those maiden speeches. So one of the highlights for me was a speech by Andrew Bragg. Now, Andrew Bragg is a New South Wales Liberal MP. We've already talked about some very controversial comments he made about superannuation, and I know that's been a lot of the focus, but I thought something very significant that he did was actually come out in support of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, come out in support of having an Indigenous body enshrined in the Constitution and taking on the critique of some of his colleagues head on that this would put race in the Constitution, essentially saying, hang on a minute, we've had race there for a very long time and saying that this is the right thing to do. He had significant Indigenous leaders in 
the chamber watching him. He had uh, Rachel Perkins there, Richie Armat. So I think all of this is pretty significant. It's one voice. It's only one. But it shows that there are people shifting on this issue in the coalition. Uluru asks legislators to consult Indigenous people on the laws which are relevant to them. This is a good idea. This is a fair idea. But I would not support constitutional recognition at any price. I offer five principles if we are to succeed. Any proposal must, one, capture broad support of the Indigenous community, two, focus on community-level improvements, three, maintain the supremacy of parliament, four, maintain the value of equality, and five, strengthen national unity. Yeah, you're right, PK. That was, I thought, a very impressive speech from Andrew Bragg. He's coming out and nailing his colours so firmly to that must of including some kind of voice in the referendum and referencing Murray Gleeson, who's the former Chief Justice, of course, in the Howard years, who's laid out a really cogent and powerful argument. So I thought that was pretty great too. Another, I thought, of the maiden speech moments, and there was a few of them this week. There was, for instance, the Labor MP Peter Murphy, the member for Dunkley, who stood up and revealed that just two weeks after she won that seat, which was, you know, a big win for Labor. They haven't won that for many, many years. She's found out that her breast cancer has returned, so that was powerful. But there was also the moment when Gladys, Liberal MP Gladys Liu stood up. Now, Gladys Liu is the member for Chisholm, and she's Chinese-born, and she, in fact, I think she's the first Chinese-born certainly the first Chinese-born woman, perhaps the first Chinese-born MP in the lower house, and she spoke about her experiences as a migrant woman, as a single mother, her disability, and she even spoke in four languages. It is not uncommon for ethnic women to stay with their husbands during unjust situations rather than face the family shame of being a single mother. It was my children who gave me strength to do what was right by them. And they gave me a purpose to keep being a good mother. To the whole Chinese community in Australia, yeah, a really significant moment, I think, in terms of the history books as well for our parliament. Look, that's it for us for this week. Uh, Fran, you're going to be back next week with another co-host, a guest co-host, because I will be flying to the Gama Festival. And that's fantastic for you, but you know what? You're going to miss out on something great, PK. What? What am I going to miss well, out Well, <laughs> next week... Next week is on RN is Counterculture Week because we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. And so all week, Woodstock to Pussy Riot is how they're promoting it. Um, and they're really looking about all the sort of the issues and the, the notion of dissent and protest that arose and that great change that has happened in that 50 years. So I'm going to have a bit of a hippie tune for us next week, PK, oh. to get us in the vibe. And I've got a riddle for you now, PK. Are you ready? Yes. PK, why did the hippie drown? I don't know why did the hippie Because drown. he was far out, man. <laughs> Goodness gracious. All right, question time submissions are always welcome. Fran's going to return to question time next week. Tweet them at us, email them to thepartyroom at abc.net.au or hashtag thepartyroom. Or record them. We love those. And don't forget, subscribe, rate, review. Our eternal gratitude is yours if you do. It certainly is. See you, Fran. See you, PK. PK, you happy? Happy.
I'm Angela Vaupierre. And I'm Stephen Stockwell. And we're from the ABC's daily news podcast, The Signal. Forget what you think you know about Boris Johnson, because there is more to Britain's new Prime Minister than the bumbling eccentric you see in front of the camera. I, I like to paint, or I make things. That whole personality is a sort of, it's artifice, really. I mean, it, Boris is essentially a stage persona. But what's behind the image Boris Johnson works so hard to project? And what does that mean for the UK? That's The Signal. You can hear us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you normally get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.